I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Rachna Shanbog, the Economist's European economics correspondent. On today's Money Talks, it's all about markets. From the way we can predict a recession. In America, the yield curve points to perhaps a 35-40% chance of recession at the moment. I think what is interesting, however, is that policymakers do not seem to have wisened up to the the kind of soothsaying ability of the yield curve. To Vancouver, where the introduction of lift-sharing apps could threaten its thriving transport market. We have a very, very good public transportation system. They initially did not want it. I think they are trying to find ways to accommodate ride hailing. But first, the Trump administration has labelled China a currency manipulator after the renminbi hit its weakest level in 11 years. China's government let the renminbi fall after America's president threatened tariffs on $300 billion worth of Chinese goods last week. On Monday, the currency cracked seven, meaning the yuan passed the seven per dollar level for the first time since 2008. The US Treasury believes China has devalued its currency on purpose to gain an unfair advantage in international trade. What does all this mean for the relationship between the world's largest economic powers? John O'Sullivan writes the Buttonwood column for The Economist. Hello, John. Hi. So, John, what's all the fuss about currency manipulation? Well, obviously, the uh, the labelling by the US Treasury of China as a currency manipulator is the big news today. But it's actually in response to much more dramatic news, which was that the one exchange rate went through seven against the dollar. What's the significance of the number seven? Well, first of all, in markets, the yuan has been trading for the last four years in a fairly narrow range between around six and a half and seven. It's never got weaker than seven. The last time it was there, as you said, was 2008. So people have got used to the idea that the yuan trades more flexibly than it used to, but it does so within set bounds. And the feeling was that going over seven would be essentially setting a new sort of paradigm for the one dollar exchange rate. The other big significance, I think, is it seems that the White House and the Treasury have latched onto this number seven as being important and has been folded into the trade negotiations. So a few months back, back in May and June, it had emerged from various sources that the one exchange rate was part of the trade negotiations. So in effect, the trade war, which became a trade technology war, was beginning to come a trade technology and currency war. Um, China pushed back against this, saying that it reserved the right to have a flexible exchange rate as an automatic stabilizer to help the economy when it weakened. And there were public statements, well, certainly in newspapers, saying that there was nothing special about seven as a number. So this Uh, has been brewing, it seems, for a few months. Uh, What happened was last week when the Trump administration imposed a new set of tariffs 
on uh, Chinese goods to come into effect in, in September. What happens on the ground then is that a lot of Chinese companies who have debts in dollars and have to pay those back over time start to get concerned about will they be able to service those debts if they're not earning as many dollars as they were previously as a consequence of more tariffs. So you get a scramble for, for dollars amongst Chinese companies and maybe some Chinese individuals as well, which pushes the dollar up against the yuan. So underlying all this is there's something happening with the demand supply for yuan and dollar. And China, which has been managing this exchange rate in that, that band I talked about, six and a half to seven, just didn't push back as hard as it might have to ensure that the currency stayed within seven. It went over seven. So essentially what China did was strategically allowed uh, market forces to push uh, the exchange rate above seven, which is clearly deemed as a retaliation, certainly by the Treasury, for the imposition of tariffs uh, late last week. As you say, we seem to have moved into a new phase of the trade war here, a new front has opened up. What happens next? Will the Chinese authorities allow the renminbi to fall further? No, I don't think so. It's kind of interesting that this is a feels like a very big acceleration in this long-running dispute now. Um, so in a matter of days, we've had new tariffs, the one falling or going above a level, against the dollar that it hasn't done for 11 years, and then this statement from the Treasury um, labelling China a currency manipulator. That's all happened in the space of less than a week. Um, So this seems like very significant. And of course, the new front means that it's moved out from just being goods and technology. Now it's an asset price war as well, which makes financial markets very nervous. The interesting thing is what happens next, of course. And it seems to me, at least, and these are sort of provisional thoughts, that any next step by either China or by America is actually so self-harming that they're unlikely to take it. And so, I mean, one of the reasons why China has kept its exchange rate in this narrow band is it doesn't want the currency to depreciate too quickly because there's a fear that that will spur people to get out of one and get into dollars in a very dramatic way, which puts undue pressure on the exchange rate and causes instability in the Chinese economy. And that means, I think, that China is unlikely to let the one just go weaker and weaker. It's allowed it to go over the seven strategically, but I don't think it's just going to allow the whole thing to go where it likes. So I think we can be reasonably confident that that's not going to happen. On the American side, first of all, the tariffs that they put in place or they've announced don't come into force until September. So it would be a, a, you know an amazing acceleration to, to sort of step up what hasn't even been enacted yet. There's a lot of speculation a couple of weeks ago that America might intervene itself to weaken the dollar. But it seems that the White House and the Treasury have concluded that that would be enormously harmful to America without giving it a great deal of advantage, which is to say that one of the great strategic advantages that America has over China is that it does have very open capital markets. People like to buy dollar assets. And if the Treasury were to start itself betting against the dollar, betting against people who are betting on the dollar, that would be harmful to America's long-term strategic uh, aims, particularly vis-a-vis China. So it seems like, although we've had this massive acceleration, my hope is and my provisional take is that we're probably at a, a standstill in terms of further measures for the moment. Nevertheless, a weaker renminbi does have wider effects on financial markets. Yeah, I mean, the renminbi dollar exchange rate is actually one of the most important asset prices in the world right now. Since China allowed the renminbi to move a bit more with market forces back in 2015, a lot of other currencies have been moving in tandem with one dollar. So when the one weakens other big trading currencies, the euro, the Australian dollar, most of the Asian currencies, South Korean won and so on, tend to move 
alongside it. So essentially, it's the prime mover of global currency markets. And the implications of that go way beyond just the currency markets, because if the one weakens, you generally get dollar strength right across the board. If the one goes down, everything goes down against the dollar. And dollar strength is a problem, not just for the US economy, which is actually one of the more has proved to be one of the more resilient economies. But generally, dollar strength is associated with a weak global economy, because lots of companies and countries outside America borrow in dollars. So a weak renminbi means a strong dollar and a strong dollar means a weak global economy outside America. So the, so arguably, this exchange rate has enormous implications that go way beyond just China. John O'Sullivan, thank you very much. Thank you. And you can read more on this in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And why not try a subscription? Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next, a question for you. What do all of these moments in the history of American pop culture have in common? I have never been a quitter. To leave office before my term is completed is abhorrent to every instinct in my body. Carlton told a joke. No, 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 Hillary. Carlton is a joke. <laughs> At all these points in time, America's economy was in recession. James Fransham writes for Graphic Detail, our data journalism section. He spoke to regular Money Talks host Simon Long about whether it's possible to predict a recession. Just ahead of these recessions, the yield curve inverted. Let's uh, unpack that a little bit, James. What is a yield curve? Really simply, a yield curve describes the interest rate at which governments borrow. Governments borrow different interest rates depending on the amount of time that they're borrowing for. And normally speaking, governments will pay higher interest rates if they want to borrow for longer. Investors will demand a higher interest rate for longer term debt because they're worried that inflation will erode the face value of the money that they lend. An inverted yield curve describes two points on on the yield curve. So we talk about the the three-month interest rate and the 10-year interest rate. Typically speaking, 10-year interest rates exceed those of three months. But when the yield curve inverts, three-month interest rates rise above those of 10-year interest rates. Now, presumably, this is not just a coincidence. In, in a way, from first principles, you would expect that if interest rates were that way round, that is, people were expecting the economy to weaken in the long term and interest rates to go down, then indeed, a recession might be coming. That is true. So in America, for example, there's, there's this, this notable statistic that ahead of every post-war recession, the yield curve is inverted. Um, so it's been very reliable. And there's just been one false alarm, and that was in the mid-1960s. And should we be worried now then? Because am I right in thinking that the yield curve has inverted this year? Yes, that's right. The yield curve inverted in America in March. There is cause for concern. And what about in the rest of the world? Does the relationship hold good there too? Well, at first glance, no. So we had a look at 16 other countries, uh, the rich world countries. And in those countries, there have been 95 recessions in total in our data set, which goes back as far as 1960. And we find that um, on approximately 50 occasions, the yield curve hasn't inverted ahead of those recessions. So it's a reasonable indicator, but it's not a very good indicator. And then in addition to that, there are lots of false alarms. So the yield curve has inverted in those countries, but a recession hasn't followed. Now, does anybody have an explanation 
as to why this relationship seems to hold so strongly in America and so loosely elsewhere in the world? What we found is that the kind of binary, is the recession, is there not a recession? And the binary, is the yield curve inverted or is it not inverted, is too crude a measure. So what you need to do is kind of look at, be a bit more subtle, be a bit more cute. If you look at the level of, of the, the yield curve, so the difference in, as I said, in the difference between 10-year interest rates and, and three-year interest rates, and then the level of, of GDP growth. If you look at these two in concert, you do find that there's a relationship that holds true and strong across 16 other countries outside of America. James, I've, I've the greatest respect for you, but I don't suppose you're the only analyst who has spotted all this. Central bankers presumably have also noticed this correlation and have put it into their decision-making process. That I presume, is one reason why the Fed cut interest rates last week. Yes, I expect it is. I think the Fed have been watching the the behaviour of the yield curve as well as other economic indicators, employment markets and so on, and decided to cut rates. I think as a result of that, the yield curve will go from being inverted to being positive again. So that suggests perhaps that the economy may have a bit longer to run. So presumably policymakers and in particular central bankers are very acutely aware of this and must be responding to the inversion of the yield curve in a way that they would hope would forestall a recession? Sure, that's a really good question. So we were really surprised by this, however. And so what we found as our test, is this being baked in to expectations or forecasts? We took a data set of GDP forecasts from private banks. So they make forecasts for the following 12 months about what their expectations of GDP growth will be in a bunch of rich countries, Italy, Japan, Canada, and so on. So we looked at how accurate they were, and they're, they're pretty good. They're pretty decent. However, if we add our information on the yield curve into those forecasts, so it's just a blend of the two, we can improve the accuracy of those forecasts. So it's a really simple metric, but we're able to improve it by about five percentage points, which is pretty decent. So are these private forecasters and your own model, are they forecasting a recession imminently in the United States? They are not. There are risks ahead. In America, the yield curve points to perhaps a 35-40% chance of recession at the moment. I think what is interesting, however, is that policymakers do not seem to have wisened up to the the kind of soothsaying ability of the yield curve. So, for example, you might think that if there is this relationship that holds true over time in America, for example, then policymakers would go, well, we'll react to this. But it seems that, historically at least, what they've tended to do is play down its ability and say, well, there is this relationship that existed historically, but it doesn't hold true anymore. And for example, Ben Bernanke did so in 2006 and Alan Greenspan in 2005. As Fed chairman, as the yield curve was was planning to invert, well, was heading for an inversion, they, they both said, well, it's no longer predictive. And then obviously, there was the Great Recession. And what about the rest of the world at the moment? The the yield curve has not been inverted in the eurozone, for example, has it? But are people more or less worried about a recession this side of the Atlantic? Well, yes, that's correct. It's not inverted. But then on our measure, what we would say is that actually the yield curve is flattening in those countries. So that is cause for concern. And so, for example, in Germany, then that suggests a slowdown in GDP growth, as it does in America too. James Fenton, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks to James Frantram and to Simon Long. Hold up. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And finally, some of you might struggle to imagine a world where you don't have an Uber or Lyft driver at your fingertips. But head to Vancouver and that's precisely what you'll face. It's the only big city in North America where ride-hailing apps don't operate. But now, British Columbia has announced it will finally allow the ride-sharing businesses in. How will this impact the local economy? Petty Fong is The Economist Vancouver correspondent. Hello, Petty. Hi, how are you? Petty, why have officials been reluctant to allow ride-hailing apps to be used in the city? Well, you know, Uber was in Vancouver pretty quickly after it started. They were in there in 2012, and they lasted for about six months. But there were these regulations that a number of ride-hailing services said were just too onerous, including, you know, having to charge $75 as a surcharge as a limousine right away. So Uber left quite quickly. They left after a few months and they haven't been back, although they have wanted to come back. And there has been this uh, call from a number of people saying that, you know, we should have Uber. You know, it's quite interesting because one of the things that happens here is that we have visitors coming to Vancouver and we have something that, you know, locals call the Uber stare where their people are looking at their phone puzzled and going, why can't I get an Uber here? How do people in Vancouver get around then? We have a very, very good public transportation system. Uh, in many major North American cities, public transit has gone down. But in Vancouver, uh, transit ridership has gone up. So it's an extensive network. It's uh, buses and it's what we call the SkyTrain. And that goes right to the airport. And it really services the downtown area very well and some of the suburbs around. And then we also have one of the most popular car sharing sites, our here and we have a number of cars that is available for people to rent for an hour or a few hours and our bike system is quite extensive as well. But now the province of British Columbia plans to allow ride-hailing services in Vancouver. What's driven that change of direction? Well, there has been in recent years a growing call from a number of business owners and a number of people saying, you know, we shouldn't be the only North American city that doesn't allow ride hailing like Uber or Lyft. So it has been a growing call and it became a bit of an election issue a couple of years ago. And so when the government came in, they said that they would look into it and that they would consider allowing ride hailing, which has been pushed by a number of people and lobbyists like the ride hailing groups. Now, as you've said, Vancouver's residents have plenty of options. Do you think they'll embrace ride-hailing apps? I think uh, people who use or who want, let's say, uh, ride-hailing in places where there's been long lineups at the airport and long lineups at the cruise ship terminals downtown – 
when Bright Haven comes in, these people are going to feel quite happy about it. They're going to be quite satisfied. What might not happen are the, some of the policymakers, people who uh, run the transit system, because the idea is that, you know, uh, while ride hailing comes in, they were hoping that they would serve some of the communities in some of the areas where transit is not able to serve right now. So I think there could be an issue. Uh, the taxi situation here, they initially did not want it. I think they are trying to find ways to accommodate ride hailing, including working with the services as well. But I think it could have an impact on public transit ridership and it could have an impact on increasing congestion downtown, which is exactly what people don't want because we do have quite a congested downtown already. We have quite a lot of congestion going out to some of the suburbs. The province of British Columbia now says that it will allow these services to operate in Vancouver. When would you expect that to start taking effect? Well, they're going to open it up starting at the end of September. But here's one of the interesting things about, you know, why it has taken so long for ride hailing to come to British Columbia. They're going to have one of the strictest regulations in the country. You know, if you want to be an Uber driver or a Lyft driver here now in uh, Vancouver and in British Columbia, you're going to have to get a commercial license, which is what uh, taxi drivers have to have. And so already some of these uh, ride hailing services, Uber, and Lyft have said that it just makes it very difficult for people who want to drive part-time, who want to do it to supplement their income, and that it could lead to exactly the opposite of what transportation authorities were hoping, in that instead of people driving in places where they don't have transit, that they're in areas, the downtown area, where these ride-hailing drivers are going to congregate. Patty Fong, thank you. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. I'm Rachna Sharnbog. In London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.